Hi, I'm Ariana. And I'm Julie Gafke. And this is Justice, That's, That's the, the Business, business we're, we're In. in. This Michigan-based podcast focuses on civil rights laws and cases from the perspective of attorney Julie Gafke and her law firm. Attorney Gafke specializes in discrimination cases. This is a podcast for those who are interested in learning more about the law, current events, and the way in which they affect our communities in everyday life. Um, in this episode today, we're going to be talking about the civil rights movement, and we're going to give an overview on three events um, that really stick out to us in this movement. Um, so we're going to give some background information. So the civil rights movement began in 1954, and it ended in 1968. Uh, this movement provided transformative change in the United States towards equality for African Americans and other people of color. Uh, one way to describe this movement is an avalanche. Um, it's a great analogy. Uh, so a piece of snow on a mountain begins to move downwards. And as the snow moves, it causes more snow to follow down the hill until the amount of snow is undeniable and creates irreversible change. Um, I think that's one way to describe this movement for sure. I think it's a great way, Ariana. I, it, it's, it's the small little things that people do every day in their daily lives that create large, large impact. And the impact you can see even today. Um, well, just one of my favorite quotes from Martin Luther King is, if I cannot do great things, I can do small things in a great way. That's a great quote. Um, fun fact, I actually, <laughs> I had a Martin Luther King uh, Jr. quote for my senior quote, uh, but it was not that one. Um, it was free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Um, so going back to this episode, um, this the impact that this movement had in everyday life um, involved desegregation, uh, discrimination, Jim Crow laws, hate crimes, and other forms of oppression. Um, so for those of you who don't know, uh, Jim Crow... Um, they were laws that were put in place in southern states to promote and assist in uh, promoting segregation by race um, and, and discriminate. Um, but I think one thing that we should know is that although like we, the podcast, like we are in Michigan, um, just because we're in the northern states doesn't mean that we didn't have racism in other um, ways, even though it wasn't named Jim Crow. Oh, yeah. I mean, there were covenants in deeds that homes could only be sold to white families, for instance. And that was very prominent, and that happened until the Fair Housing Act of 1968 was passed. Uh, so that created a lot of segregation in neighborhoods because the deeds actually excluded black families from moving in. And, like, a lot of times, like, even today... Um, one of my teachers described it as like white flight when a group of like people of color begin to move into predominantly white neighborhoods um, a lot of times people become scared um, and get up and move farther away from that area um, and in Michigan like in certain areas you can definitely see where it's taken place um, they move farther and farther out from the inner city into the suburbs. Yeah, we're going to be talking about 
Brown versus Board of Education that happened in 1954, and a lot of that white flight you're talking about happened after that decision, unfortunately, because uh, the schools had to integrate, according to the U.S. Supreme Court. But but we're going to be focusing more on that, but why don't you go ahead and tell our audience more about um, an overview for today's podcast. Yes. Um, so we're going to be talking about, uh, like Julie said, we're going to be talking about Brown versus Board of Education. We're going to be talking about um, Emmett Till, and then we're going to be ending the podcast with the uh, Montgomery um, bus boycott. And I think one thing to mention before we get into this is that people think that this movement is far away from where we are right now. Um, In my observation is I think it's because, I think one reason, one small reason is because um, of the black and white photos that are used in our history books and presented when you reflect on these civil rights leaders. And it's interesting because color photography was invented um, in the 1890s and it was uh, released for public use in the 1930s. Uh, This means that there was over a 30 year gap between the time that um, color photography, photography was used for public use and the civil rights movement. so I think that's just one thing I noted. Um, so that's, yeah. a, that's a really interesting take on it. Because when you see a black and white photo, you think this happened a long time ago. Yeah, you're like, that's ancient. And yeah. it's like, it really, that's not, it's or, not that long ago. Or that it, it's not relevant to you. Because, like you said, it's dated, it's old, um, it's not in color. So that's really an interesting take. And with our technology today you could make some of these black and white photos, colored photos that are relevant and, and people would not view it as being so so long ago. Yes, and uh, Bernice King, uh, Martin Luther King's daughter, she posted on her Twitter a photo of like her parents on vacation. I'm like, this picture's in color. And you could tell that it wasn't like edited back, like edited like recently like this it was taken in color um so that was also another interesting thing that i saw and so when you saw that did you think i'm like this seems more recent yes and even i remember like when we were learning about this like in elementary school like that's so long ago like i they i i don't think i fully when i was i'm talking about elementary school i'm like i don't think i fully comprehended that it really wasn't that long ago so um i think it's quite interesting how like the way that we document um historical events um has an effect on the way that people view it so yeah so julie you want to start us off with brown versus board of education well brown versus board of education is a landmark case i mean it really is a transformative civil rights case out of the u.s supreme court that had a ripple effect on the civil rights movement. It really was one of these snowflakes that created this avalanche that you're talking about, Ariana. So what happened in Brown versus Board of Education um, was that the idea of segregated schools mandated by the state or local government was challenged. 
Um, in the South, it was not uncommon for there to be all black schools and all white schools. Not only was it not uncommon, it was, it was legally required in a lot of the Southern states. And so the US Supreme Court took up the case of Brown versus Board of Ed Education. Now these Southern states that had these laws that said there had to be segregation, uh, they based their ability to do that on U.S. Supreme Court cases from the past. For instance, there was a case, Plessy versus Ferguson, that was an 1896 case that held segregation was constitutional. Mm -hmm. And it said that it was constitutional because as long as you're equal, you can be separate. It's called the separate but equal doctrine. But they, it, in reality, guys, like it was not equal. Just because you have two buildings does not mean that it's equal. The stuff within those buildings were not the same. They did not receive the same quality of education as um, white kids did. Absolutely not. And in the 1930s, there was a study done um, out of Florida where it was shown that the white school properties, the value of white school properties would, would be about $70,000 plus. And the black school properties, the value is under 5000 A lot of these schools, black schools, didn't have toilets, water supplies, desks, blackboards. I mean, they were not equipped to educate. Um, and yet the white counterpart schools had all of those amenities. Things that we take for granted. Mm -hmm. um, can you imagine going to school and not being able to use the restroom or having a blackboard to use uh, or to, you know, have adequate water or a desk even so that you can write? Um, so you're right, Ariana, the, the schools were not equal by any means. And so in 1954, the U.S. Supreme Court heard the case of Brown versus Board of Education, and fortunately, the court said separate but equal doctrine is not, is not constitutional under the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. The Equal Protection Clause requires that there be integration, requires that there be desegregation, requires that we don't allow states to have a law that says it's okay to separate or segregate races as long as you're supposedly equal because it never really is really equal. So now we have in 1954 this landmark case that's saying integration, um, really it's saying that you can't segregate the schools based on race. Um. One thing that, um, so Brown versus Board of Education, um, the parent who um, was suing stated that it violated his child's 14th um, Amendment. And History.com simpli simplifies the 14th Amendment stating that it granted citizenship to all persons born or naturalized in the United States, including former enslaved people, and guaranteed all citizens equal protection of the laws. 
Absolutely. So equal protection of the laws means that we don't discriminate based on race. We don't discriminate based on gender. Those are protected categories and they should be. Um, we should be a country that provides equal protection under the law. It's written in our constitution and fortunately Brown versus Board of Education struck down this separate but equal, which was definitely not um, in line with the 14th Amendment, in my view. Um, so, segregation and discrimination, no question, negatively affects black people. Unfortunately, there's still a lot of work to be done to desegregate, to to have equal opportunities in this country, to um, provide equal access. Uh, even after 1954, it didn't happen overnight. I mean, in the early 70s, states and local governments were still trying to figure out how to integrate the schools. The schools weren't getting integrated. There was still a lot of segregation in the school districts. So what happened was in 1971, the Supreme Court took up a case, um, heard a case, Swan versus Charlotte Mecklenburg Board of Education. That was the landmark case dealing with busing of students to promote integration in public schools. So what happened was there were schools within districts that were still segregated. So you would have one school district, you'd have one high school, for instance, that had all white students or predominantly white students. And then you'd have another high school, maybe in the city, that was predominantly black students. And so in order to combat that segregation, um, they came up with busing. So intra-district busing. So busing in, within the district between those schools, for instance, to provide a more balanced um, ratio of students. Now, a lot of people are not big fans of busing. Some people um, remember growing up and having to be bused across town and it would take 45 minutes to an hour to get to school. But you know, it was important for Brown versus Board of Education to be put into place. The goal of, Board of, of Brown versus Board of Education was to create an environment of equality, for there to be integration in the public schools, and it wasn't happening without some type of mechanism like busing. So the final impact of Brown versus Board of Education was that it was found to be unconstitutional to have separate but equal schools. Yeah. Unfortunately, there was a lot of work to be done to desegregate schools, and frankly, there's still more work to be done. Yes. I, when we were talking about this, I'm just thinking about like how a lot of times people move from the city to the suburbs, and then like when the suburbs start to become more diversified, a lot of white families will start to move farther and farther and farther away. Um, 
And another thing that I'm noticing is that a lot of times, like, the inner city is starting to become gentrified. So that's, I was like, you can only go out so far before you go back in. So, um, yeah. Yeah, that's true. So what happened after Brown versus Board of Education was that, obviously, the U.S. Supreme Court said it was illegal to to have a law that said that segregation um, was okay. And so you had white flight, you had white families moving from the, the city to the, to the suburbs, and schools were segregated still, not by law, um, but by fact, in reality, which mm-hmm. is le- a legal term they call de facto. There was de facto segregation. And so, you know, the, for 20 years after Brown versus Board of Education, there still was this segregation in fact. And so now you have busing because the idea was to bus students across the school district to help integrate the school district and make it more balanced. And so, you know, if the, if the district is based on countywide, then you may have one student who lives close to one high school but is being bused to a high school 45 minutes away. And there was a lot of pushback with busing. A lot of people didn't like it. A lot of families um, opposed it. But it was one way to try to integrate and create a more equitable environment for all races in education. I mean, Ariane, I can remember and I'm going to show you my age here by what I'm going to say. But, uh, you know, I was when I was born in the early 70s, I lived in Metro Detroit, and I went to an all-white school. I lived on a street that was all-white. Really, my education could have looked a lot differently had the U.S. Supreme Court decided differently in a case that, was before the U.S. Supreme Court in 1974 called Milliken versus Bradley. And in that case, what happened was the school district was, in order to try to integrate, was busing, had a policy to bus between districts. There were 53 different districts in the metro Detroit area that they were going to bus between in order to have more integration and balance. Um, but the U.S. Supreme Court said no. They said that the Metro Detroit schools did not have to bus interdistrict. that as long as the school districts were not intentionally discriminating, intentionally excluding one race over the other, that in order to accomplish the goals of board of Brown versus Board of Education, they did not have to bus students inter districts. So unfortunately, and I do say unfortunately, um, that was not required. And I could have went to a more diverse school. I think I would have gotten 
a better education and it would have been a more valuable experience to me to to not be in a school system where everybody looked the same as far as race. Um, so I thought it was an injustice. It wasn't right. And at the time, in the early 70s, schools were being funded through property taxes, which only perpetuated discrimination between districts. Um, so anyways, I, I digress, but you could see the ripple effect that Brown versus Board of Education in 1954 has had, and it still has an effect today. So um, it really was an important case. It still is a very important case. Yes, and with all the progress that we've made, we still have like a really long way to go, especially like when you, like even here, I feel like certain schools within like Saginaw are more diverse than others, and it's like based off of housing. Um, so that's one thing that we can work on as a collective. Um, I, but white flight is a whole nother episode. You could talk about that forever. There's so many different things that play into it. Um, but going into the third segment, we're going to be talking um, about Emmett Till. So Emmett Till was only 14 years old when he was brutally lynched and murdered um, in Money, Mississippi by Roy Bryant and his brother, J.W. Milam. So Emmett was from Chicago, Illinois, and it was during the summertime and he was visiting his uncle, uh, Moses Wright, during his summer break, and he wanted to spend time with his uh, family and his cousin in Money, Mississippi, because his uh, mother was originally from the South. So on August 28th, uh, 1955, Emmett went with his cousin, Simeon, to the local convenience store for gum. So one thing to keep in mind is that the store was owned by Roy Bryant, who um, is Carolyn Bryant's husband. And after uh, Simeon and Emmett left, they left the convenience store, they went there to buy gum. When they left, she lied to her husband saying, that Emmett had whistled at her and verbally um, uh, assaulted her and a bunch of other lies. So, yeah, did didn't she say that he touched her hand? Yes, I mean, yes. I I I would talk about it in a couple minutes because like she is still alive um, and she did an interview uh, with a historian um, who wrote a book about Emmett Till and her confessing but um on that same day like in the middle i think in the middle of the night no not i think i know in the middle of the night um roy bryant and his uh, brother jw milam um kidnapped emmett so they um stormed up to his uncle moses's house and told them to bring him outside and they kidnapped him and took him to a remote area uh, where they beat him um, very badly to the point where he was unrecognizable. Um, they shot him and they threw his lifeless body into the Tallahatchie River, but not before they tied barbed wire 
um, around his neck and attaching it to a cotton gin. Um, and this is truly, truly disgusting. Um, and to those of you who do not know, by definition, lynching is when multiple pe people um, gather with the goal of torture um, and murdering someone without the permission of any form of court. So um, this included beating people, hanging them. Um, a lot of times, like, people were burned. Um, and I, in one of the articles I was reading, they had mentioned that, like, sometimes they would tie them to, like, the back of, like, an automobile and drive. And I'm just, like, j until their bodies were just dismembered. And that's, uh, it's, it's a lot. Um, and one thing, one way that this, obviously, like, this, case um, changed the country forever. But I think one pivotal point is um, Emmett's mother, uh, Mamie Till Mobley, um, and she made the tough and brave decision to have an open casket for her uh, son as a form of protest. And um, when I was reading the, um, at the end of the episode, we're going to um, cite our sources and give you guys some resources to, you know, do your own reading if you'd like. Um, but I, the blood of Emmett Till talks about how the, um, guy who was like performing the autopsy and getting him ready for, you know, a funeral, they're like, maybe you should have a closed casket because his body was so disfigured. Um, and she's like, no, she said, let the people, and I quote, she said, let the people see what they did to my boy. Um, and she told him not to touch, not to change anything, not to try to fix him, not to try to make him more presentable for an open casket. She said, leave him alone and we're going to have, we're going to have this open casket. Um, and it took them multiple days to find his, um, to find him in the Tallahatchie River. Um, and this Letting the people see what they did to my boy, that quote just, it just stays with you because her form of protest worked and it sparked an outrage across the country. There, it was in every newspaper. There's no way that you were living during this time and saying like, I didn't hear about this. Like it was almost impossible. And disgust, disgustingly, the brothers were acquitted by an all white and an all male jury. That's awful. Truly, it like this. What an injustice! This case boils my blood. Like it just makes me so angry. Um, and historian uh, Timothy Tyson interviewed Carolyn Bryant Donham, who was this lady who lied um, and used her white femininity to lie to her husband and have that kid murdered. Um, and so in two thousand seven. Uh, Timothy Tyson interviewed this lady and she was 72 at the time for his book The Blood of Emmett Till. I did read it um, and it's it's a tough read but it's it's one that I highly recommend that you read. It's a great book. Ariana recommended it to me and I'm I've read it too and it was it's really a chilling difficult book to read at times but um, I think it shows just how brave his mother was. And um, Mamie Till Mobley died in uh, 2003, and Carolyn Bryant is still alive to this day. Uh, 
she is currently 86 years old and you know somehow for some reason she gets to live her private life um, with no consequences of what she did um, and one thing to note is that in the interview that Timothy Tyson did with Carolyn um, she confessed saying that Till never verbally or physically assaulted her and it was noted it was also noted in this article it was an article written on his book but it was um, Vanity Fair and Vanity Fair noted that in his case um, he mentions his conversation with Carolyn and she said and I quote when Carolyn herself lost one of her sons she thought about the grief that Mamie must have felt and grieved all the more and I'm like this just made me angry when I was reading this because I was like lady like it took you this long to think about how your horrible horrible actions affected a, um, a young boy had him murdered and you're like wow like after I lost my son to natural causes now I know how she like how she feels like that that is so insensitive and I was just like I truly don't think that she learned from her actions I like reading the articles I'm just like like yes she's like yeah like I, I lied but like I don't I just felt like she had no emotion and another thing that I was like found interesting she, it, the article had mentioned something saying like oh she's not the type of one to like join like into like this was again during like the height of like the Black Lives Matter movement like um that this article was written the one by Vanity Fair had said something along the lines of like oh like she's not one to join like those type of movements and I'm like no duh she's not one to, t to, t to join those movements this lady is a racist and she got to live her elderly years in peace and didn't care about her actions until um and she's still living in peace but I was just like it it's crazy how she's like she didn't think how this hurt his mother and the rest of the nation until she lost her son to natural causes um and one random fact is that um Emmett's original casket is behind glass at the um National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington DC um and before the pandemic, I did have the opportunity to go and um, view it. And it was just, it's, the museum did a great job of um, preserving everything. And when you, it's in, a, in its, in a separate section in the museum, it's by itself. There's a line and you like, and it's obviously guarded. Um, and it's just silent when you're walking through there and like they're playing like interviews of like his family members and what happened and it's just it's really it's it's really tragic what happened and th we can do better than this because I was like this is unacceptable and I don't want you guys to think that like lynchings still aren't happening because they still are they aren't happening in the way that you think back in like the 50s but they're still happening um, and this this case just just makes me upset but I think it's an important one to hear and educate yourself on so Ariana how you're talking about walking past the casket and and how quiet it was and how moving that was to you 
1955, because Emmett Till's mother was brave enough to say, you know, let them see what they had did to my boy. Um, there were tens of thousands, 50,000 people or more walked past Emmett Till's casket in 1955 in Chicago and got to be a witness to how horrific and tragic a death he suffered. And hopefully when they walked away from that, I mean, people were in tears and they were breaking down and they could hardly function after seeing the devastation that this family went through. I mean, this was on TV, this was in all the newspapers. You know, the country grieved because of Emmett Till's death, but, but yet, sadly, tragically, the murders still got off, still got acquitted. And then later on, they, I, I need to look up the price, but they got paid like an article was willing to like pay them for an interview and they're like yeah they like confessed they said yeah we did it and i'm just like are you kidding me like it, it, it it's crazy and the thing is if you look back at these photos you i mean i i would just search them on your own um and you know um be prepared i mean be in the right mental state because they it's tough to look at but just being in the courtroom and seeing like Carolyn Bryant and her family just just not caring what they did like you ruined so many people's lives but and you stole you stole someone's life you you murdered them for no reason and came out later and said that um that this boy did something to you and you know that's not true um and Unfortunately, this lady's writing a book that's not supposed to be released until she dies. I don't know what that book is going to entail or what she has to say that we don't already know. Um, I'm truly not that interested in hearing what she has to say. Um, yeah. And I mean, you don't want her I was her, like, bene her estate to benefit. No. I was like, where is this money going? Right. That's important, I think. I, I, we, don't, we don't want to buy a book from somebody who caused such a tragic death of somebody else and is so callous about it and and has not suffered any repercussions because of her choice to point him out, to complain about him, to say that he did things that he didn't do. And the thing is, she was 20 at the time, she was 25 and Emmett was 14. You were a grown woman and he is a child, an innocent child, and you just lied for, like, what was the reason? I, I, it just makes me upset. I don't right. know. I mean, they were in a, she was in a store. He was a customer. They, at no time was, <laughs> was him and her alone. And, and even assuming what she said was true, it wasn't that bad. I mean, a whistle, a touch of the hand. You mistakenly touch her, her hand when you're paying. You know. and, and they're like, oh, it's because he's from Chicago. No. Like, yes, the South and the North were different, but he didn't do those things at all. And I think another thing to note, um, 
about this entire case is that she she's still alive and she's really she has a Facebook page I'm serious she has a Facebook page and like she's like yeah she lives a really private life I'm like she really shouldn't get to live one a, a private life um I, I don't know but I think another thing that like assisted in her you know being I mean to live the life that she currently lives now is because um of her white femininity and in multiple articles that I read they're like oh she was a young beautiful white woman I was like with dark hair and like big eyes I'm like what does this have to do with anything you like this lady committed a crime a hate crime and so did the rest of her family and you're like oh like I just I don't know I just didn't think I was like I didn't that didn't sit right with me I'm like if two plus two is four so this is not adding up um so i i one thing another thing to say is like emmett till like rest in peace um and people are still fighting um for um racial equality and i think another thing to note is that when i said earlier that like lynchings are still happening um one thing is one case that comes to my mind is ahmaud arbery who was on a run. He was minding his own business and he was hunted down and shot and murdered. He was minding his own business and he still hasn't received justice. Um, right, and that just that's happened in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. That was tragic and should never have happened and it just shows that, unfortunately, racism still is alive. Yes, it, like you said, there there are lynchings. That is a that is a lynching. You like two men. It was a father and a son. Like this, you went after him in broad daylight. It's on camera. What is there to discuss? It's right there. Um, so I think just just keep that in mind. Um, and you know the actions. One thing I'd like to note is. Um, with this avalanche theme that we're having throughout this episode leading into our segment four with the Montgomery bus boycott is that Mamie um, Till Mobley's uh, decision to have that open casket has had lasting effects. Um, So for example, the reason it's stated that um, the reason that Rosa Parks was motivated not to give up her seat on the bus was because, and I quote, she thought of Emmett Till and couldn't do it. If, if Mamie uh, wouldn't have had that open casket, then a lot of people probably wouldn't have known what would have what happened to him, um, and a lot of things. I think change still would have occurred, just at a much slower pace, um, and. Uh, the name of the case with the Montgomery bus boycott is uh, Broder versus Gale. Um, it began with Rosa Parks not wanting to give up her seat. And she was in the um, section for, quote, colored people um, and that there were no more seats. And the bus driver told her to get up and give it to um, a white woman. Um, so when she she said she thought about getting up and she's like nope i thought of emmett till she's like i'm not getting up so she was fined ten dollars 
um, and she had to pay $4 in court fees um, after being arrested for not giving up her seat. But another thing to note that I think is really, really important um, is that Rosa Parks was not the first woman to do this. Um, the first person was Claudette Colvin, and she was arrested for the same actions as Parks, and it was way earlier. It was nine months earlier, um, and the reason that she wasn't recognized is because um, she was pregnant, and they didn't think that she would be a good fit for the symbol of resistance. Um, another reason, I think, is because of colorism, but that's another episode um, entirely. And uh, the bus boycott, it was in, it began in December. Um, and this whole thing, I didn't, I, I learned this when researching. It was organized by the president of the Women's Political Council, Joanne Robinson. Um, and it lasted for over a year. It lasted for 381 days. So uh, one, another takeaway I have from this is if you want to make an impact, hit them in their pockets. Um, right. I mean, imagine your only way to work is by taking a bus. You don't have a car. I mean, 1955, having a car was a luxury. Um, and so a lot of people did not have vehicles. Imagine you working 10 miles away. But you, in, in order to participate in this boycott, this important boycott, to get, to hit them in their pockets, you know, you decide, I'm going to walk 10 miles every day. I mean, that's incredible um, that people made those types of sacrifices. Think of all the people that made a sacrifice those 381 days to, uh, to be together to be in, in union to oppose a discriminatory practice of, you know, having white people sit in the front um, of a bus, which is just ridiculous. Uh, thankfully, it's, it's, they were successful in their efforts and, and, and that practice was eliminated, but not without the work of many people. Yeah, um, it's, and a lot of times I think this is another, another, an entirely another episode, <laughs> um, how women, a lot of times, like during this movement, were like pushed to the back. Like you hear about Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, great people, but I'm like, there were women who were helping along the way as well. Um, so I, I, I think that's great. And it just reminds me that history is just one big connection. Um, I had mentioned this a little bit earlier, but without Mamie Till Mobley, Rosa, uh, Rosa Parks might not have given up her seat. And she might have resisted, um, resisted giving up her seat in Montgomery. So it means that desegregation of buses in Montgomery probably wouldn't have happened until much later. So their actions inspired a movement. You might not think that like what you're doing is making a difference, but it is. Uh, so any last words? Yeah, I mean, there's so much more we could talk about. And we're only in the 1950s here, but yeah. you could see from these three major events, all happening you know, 1954 through 1955, uh, 
just a couple years here mm-hmm. of events that really that was a watershed time and important time and like you said that really created an avalanche of change and and the movement was made extremely strong by the courageous actions of of these individuals and of, of hundreds of thousands of people who walk to work who refused to get on the bus for that 381 days it really took a lot of people to send a message and it was inspired because somebody wanted to go to school and get a good education yeah yeah uh, so thank you so much for joining us for this episode um, and be sure to follow us on Twitter um, at J G-A-F-K-A-Y and on Facebook at Gathke Law. Uh, PLC, and we will have the resources that we use to research this episode um, in the episode description, so feel free to check those out and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone.